What we're going to talk about tonight is the providence of God and the way God has worked His will out uh, through history. Uh, we want to notice uh, how that on the one hand you have predestination in the Bible, but yet on the other hand you have free moral agency completely. I want to know how on the one hand you have God as sovereign and bringing about his will and in control, and then on the other hand how that he does this without ever tampering with people's will. I don't believe there's a single time Old or New Testament where God has in any way tampered with anybody's free choice or free will. I don't believe that he does anything mystical uh, to anybody's mind in order to accomplish his will. And so what we see in, in providence is God bringing about his will on this earth throughout the centuries without at the same time tampering with any human being's will and yet it's humans that he's using as his agency. And I don't think there's any better place to start than this eighth chapter. We'll also note another thing in the process and that is that God's number one concern in his relationship with man is man's spiritual, spiritual destination and, and his eternity, not the here and now, so far as uh, the, the physical things are concerned. The uh, TV evangelist uh, proclamation of, you know, you're almost guaranteed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, etc. If, uh, if you put these principles uh, into practice, or if you're a devout Christian or faithful enough, I really don't believe will hold up. I believe that some of the most devout people that have ever lived have suffered hardships and death many times because of their being devout and, and conscientious in, in what they believed. Uh, beginning with verse 28, uh, Mark, let's start with you and uh, read down through verse uh, 34. Verse 34. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What, then, shall we say in response to this? Is if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Okay, several things we'll note here. First of all, that as we go through, keep in mind this term in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his son. 
and that they might be the firstborn of many, many brethren, and those he predestined he called, those he called he justified, and those he justified he also glorified. From this passage, and like passages, uh, John Calvin developed his theology that uh, you either are predestined to be saved or lost, you have no choice in the matter whatsoever. Uh, at, at a point in time, if you're one of the saved group, then God will call you. Uh, if not, you'll be lost. And this was a, this particular passage here. Well, we're going to look at this in light of the whole context and see really if, you know, what is being said there. Notice something else in verse 28. He says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those that love him. Uh, another translation said, God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him. Uh, this passage is sometimes uh, interpreted that, uh, you know, that good things should happen to you if you love God. And it's also uh, used in such a way that uh, since God causes all things to work together for the good, that uh, a lot of times people will undergo a tragedy in their life, or maybe they lose a child or a mate or whatever, and then somebody comes up and says, well, you know, that God is just trying to, you've got to look for the good in it, that God is trying to do something good for you, you know, and you've got to look and find that uh, in reality this is going to be for your good uh, in the long run. Um, I don't believe that either, and we'll look at the passage in light of the whole context, uh, I do not believe it's the will of God when a drunk runs over an innocent person. I don't, do not believe it's the will of God when an innocent baby dies, or, or if uh, Charles Manson comes into somebody's house and wipes out seven or eight, that uh, I don't believe that those things are the will of God, that, uh, and that an individual should see when that thing happens, well, let's look for something good out of that. Let's look at the whole context, and as we go further, to note that he's, he's not even talking about physical things uh, here in this life. Let's notice, uh, continue on in verse 35, and uh, remember the context now. And Jack, read that verse 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, now notice, uh, he said, God works for the good. Now our question is, what are we talking about? When it says God works for the good of those that love him, or God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him. What are we talking about? We can see here that it doesn't seem that we're saying that God is working uh, for our physical good in the in some uh, sense over and above the norm of mankind 
because you have it, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Well, notice the implication there. What is he also saying if he says, these things cannot separate you from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. You may have them. Okay. In other words, he's saying the only promise is, these things will not separate you from the love of God. But you can be a devout believer and have trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And uh, Paul is writing this as an apostle who has experienced all of this, hasn't he? As an apostle. And then, uh, knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors. And then look at verse 38. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present of the future, nor any powers, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love. So again, not even death will separate from the love. But according to this, you can get sick, you can die, you can be persecuted, you can go through a famine, you can experience hardship, you can even be slaughtered and go to your death. And there is no promise in this that in God causing things to work together for good that God is making a promise to believers that hey you don't even you don't have to worry about somebody killing you or be concerned that uh, you don't have to be concerned about somebody killing you or about persecution or trouble or or sickness or famines or or anything like that what he's really what he's saying there is that yes you can go through all of that but what is the promise won't separate from the love. In other words, and so then we look at it, we say, well, what is he talking about here? That it, if, if, if ever there was tough love, this is it, doesn't it? Because he says, God will let you go through all of this, but it will not separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, now, one of the things we want to note as we go through and, and the reason this has to be, it's not by the way that God wants anybody to have to go through it. The only way that God could have a situation where everybody that loves God and is faithful to Him would not have to uh, experience any of the hardships or problems or things of this life would be to in some way tamper with other people's free moral agency, right? Some people's free choice. That as long as people have free choice, there is no escaping evil in a society. And as long as people had free choice, when the gospel went out, there were those that had the freedom to reject the gospel. And those that wanted to believe that Jesus was not the Messiah and try to destroy those who had embraced him as the Messiah, they had the freedom to do that. And so what we see is that God not tampering with man's free choice, that, that he can actually choose to do right or wrong, and that good people may very well suffer consequences because bad people make choices to be wrong. But it's not God's will that they do this. It's just they do it out of their sinfulness. But he's telling the Christians we will not, or God will not allow this, don't worry about it, it will not separate you from the love of God. 
And then in the process, he makes the promise, God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him. Well, obviously, whatever is involved in this word good is something other than physical when it says God causes all things. Now, note a few passages here. Hold your place there and turn over to 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Verses 9 through 13. Even though we love God, too, He would have to take away our free will to keep us from suffering just because I make bad choices, too. Right, right. We, even those of us at our best who love Him, make bad choices. And, and actually, it's the consequences of bad choices that let us know it was a bad choice. Right? That it's, uh, so if you take away the consequences, then you never become aware of the fact that that was a, a bad choice in, in that area. Hebrews is a good commentary on that, where he, no. I think he uses that as discipline. You'll probably come into that. Okay, look at, uh, let's see, Louise, read that verse uh, 9, starting with verse 9 through 13. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. Am I reading the right place? Mm -hmm. We are fools for Christ, but, but you are so wise in, in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Well, look at that. Now here is Paul as an apostle. And look what's happened to him as a result of becoming an apostle. He says, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. Uh, we are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We become the scum of the earth. So... Obviously, if, if there's something in the promise of all things working together for good of those that love the Lord, that he is talking about physical things here, then if Paul understood that, he'd have problems, wouldn't he? By the way, I think this is a very important concept. We're building up to where we go to look at how God acted in history and how all of history he brings about his will. What we're establishing now is... God does not tamper with free choice. All of these ugly things happen contrary to the will of God, but they happen because man has free choice. And again, a proper understanding is important because I can understand from some of the teaching that I've heard in the past that how somebody who has made the decision to become a Christian and really trying to do right and then if there are a lot of things that go wrong in their life, or they have problems and all, they could think, well, Christianity doesn't work. The promises are false. Uh, that uh, how, can this, uh, how can this happen to me? Like the one holiness preacher that Barbara and I knew in Georgia, 
his son was drowned, he quit the church. You know, he said, he said I'm not going to serve a God that killed my son. Well, he was operating under the assumption that because he was faithful and his son apparently was a faithful member of the church, that that kind of thing shouldn't happen to him. And there, by the way, are a number of Christians and have been who as a result of misunderstanding this, they get into some trials and tribulations of life and they come to the conclusion Christianity isn't working for me. You know, that it's, uh, I, I just don't understand this. That uh, I know, and they're looking many times and they can honestly say, I know I'm sincere and I know I've tried to do what's right and I still have these things. That was the story of Job, wasn't it? Job couldn't understand. He knew he was no bad person and yet all those things were, were happening to him. So, we see that uh, walking by faith, now we're not saying that, that the law doesn't offer benefits to the faithful. The law is inherently right, and there are benefits. Obviously, if you live your life in an honest way, and you work hard, you're trustworthy, you develop good qualities, as a general rule, you're going to reap all kinds of benefits from that. Uh, it's going to aid you on the job. It's going to make a better parent out of you, and you're going to reap benefits there, and so all of these. But we're simply saying that this will happen because of the natural rightness of the law, and so therefore to the extent that you obey it, you'll reap those benefits. But from within that framework, you operate in a situation where everybody has free choice, and even though you may be obeying God's law to the best of your knowledge, and of course we all, when I say that, I realize that we're all imperfect, that our best falls short, but still you may be doing it in comparison to other people, you're obeying God's law. But you operate from within a framework of where everybody has free choice. And so as a result of that, you may very well get hit by a drunk, uh, or that uh, you may very well get cursed or somebody might call you the scum of the earth or try to take your life or, or something like that, specifically because you do something that's right. Uh, there may come a time in our country it's, uh, where uh, you may have to undergo all the miseries of a lawsuit and may wind up in jail because you refuse to acknowledge homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle and you say it's sinful and it's wrong. And, and if the laws in our society change a little more and they are going to change that that is going to be liable in just a, a, a few years and so you're going to do the right thing and and suffer for it. Uh, I was reading an article I forgot to bring it up the church is growing in Saudi Arabia by the way one of the good things that come out of the Gulf War was that there are now about 3,000 known Christians in Saudi Arabia that were converted by military people that were Christians that went into that area but the government of Saudi Arabia is really stepping up. They're doing all they can to eradicate Christianity in Saudi Arabia. So here are these people that made this tremendous decision to leave the Muslim faith and embrace Jesus. And the result is now they have to meet in secret and they're being persecuted and some have already been executed and more will probably be <coughs> executed. Well, you can see in their mind if they think they've been told by some preacher that, hey, now I'm a Christian, everything good's supposed to happen to me, they're going to abandon the faith because of the misunderstanding there. So then the question is, what is involved? Paul obviously is writing this as one that is living like we just described. So obviously he understands what he's saying. Okay, let's look at his whole context now in uh, the Romans. In the first 
eight chapters of Romans up to this point, Paul has been talking about one thing, and that is how that all mankind is in sin. God's answer to man's sin was Jesus. Jew and Gentile are in sin. <coughs> Jew and Gentile both need Jesus. And that uh, he has built up to a point of God sending Jesus to this earth. He is living a perfect life. He is being crucified. Um, and then man being able to stand justified by God's grace through man's faith. That God has provided a way separate apart from law, where man could repent and put his trust in Christ. And now, after eight chapters of building up to salvation in Christ by a sinful person uh, in a sinful world, now he culminates with this statement here, and he's going to continue on through the ninth chapter. In other words, when Paul talks about God causing all things to work together for the good, Paul's message is the good news of salvation in Christ. <clears throat> From Paul's standpoint and the standpoint of all the prophets, the world is in sin, and the great good that God had to bring to the world was redemption from sin. And all of history, going all the way back to the garden, has been working towards the time when God would bring Jesus to the earth and that he would die and the sacrifice would be prepared for all mankind. Now, Look at this statement here in verse uh, 29. Along with that, of this good, and we're saying that this good literally is, is God working things out through the centuries to now have Christ available to all mankind all over the world. All right, in this context, he says in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, the word predestined means simply predetermined. To predetermine, you determine in advance. Uh, last week, if uh, we made the decision we was going to meet tonight, then you could say our being here tonight was predestined. It was predetermined that we made a decision and then we're here. And whatever decision you make about the future, if you act in a certain way, let's say that you say that, uh, that uh, you want to retire at age 65. And so based on that, you put away a certain amount in your retirement account or you get a job that has a retirement and you pay your social security and you do certain things right. Well, then when you get to that point of 65 and you retire, it can say that you have predestined this. You predetermined. It didn't just happen in 65, did it? That you paid a lot of Social Security. You paid a lot into your retirement. You maybe have saved some. You paid off your house and your debts, etc. And so now you're at a retirement stage because you have predetermined. And as a result of that, what would have happened if you didn't <coughs> predetermine a certain age, whether it's 65 or 55 or 70 or whatever it is? you probably wouldn't be ready. But because you predetermined, so what you have been doing, you have been working towards a certain goal. Okay, and that's true with everything you do in life. All right, that's all that's meant in this word predetermined. God had a plan. And God had predetermined about Christ. In other words, when man sinned, 
God, first of all, knew in advance that it was going to happen. And so God, in advance, has already worked out a plan for man's sin, and he's going to bring it about through the years. It has nothing to do with God tampering with man's free choice or God choosing some people to be saved and some people to be lost. Look at the context. God works for the good of those that love him, okay, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, who has been called according to his purpose? Those that would love God. All right, now, does a love for God mean anything if it's a love that comes about because God does something mystical to you and makes you love him? It doesn't. It's, it, it only means anything if you choose to love God. And uh, is it fair for a just God to condemn wicked people when in reality the only reason they're only reason they're wicked is because God didn't choose to make them good? Well, that to my mind is uh, I would have a hard time if I was of the Calvinist bent uh, acknowledging the justice of God. Uh, in that. If some people are just determined to be bad and some are determined to be good, uh, I can see no value to love that is programmed in a person separate from his free choice. I can see no condemnation to evil if it's simply programmed in that individual. He's born to it and, and he has no choice whatsoever. God works for the good of those who love him. For those whom God foreknew, he predetermined to come, become conformed to the likeness of his son. All right, now, God knew in advance that all through the centuries that there would be those who of their own free choice would make the decision to place their faith in God and to love Him. And God also knew that there would be those that would choose not to. Remember the statement by Jesus uh, that there was a straight, uh, a narrow gate and a straight way and few there be that find it and then a wide gate, and a broad way, and many there be. And he was actually trying to persuade them to enter into the narrow gate and the straight way. Well, why try to persuade anybody unless it's all a matter of choice? And then he winds up with a foolish and wise person, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount. And the wise person is one that chooses the narrow road, and this foolish person is on Broadway of his own choice. That's why he's either, either wise or foolish. So, all he's saying here is that God has perfect foreknowledge. Uh, and I think that's difficult to comprehend for us. And the only way I can relate to it in my mind is to think of the fact that we are made in the image of God. We're finite. God is infinite. Anything God does in the infinite, you and I can do in the finite, okay? Do we have foreknowledge in any sense? Okay, we, uh, if, uh, can we come to know a fellow human being well enough that we can do a pretty accurate job of predicting how he's going to operate in a certain situation? But we can. Uh, we can come to know animals uh, that way. So we do a pretty good job of predicting how they're going to operate. It's no accident that the 
the CIA and, and some of these uh, secret organizations give psychological type tests to people before they work for them. And that a lot of top places give that uh, if the more you know about a human being, the better job you can do at predicting his behavior, right? All right, you're not exercising any control over that person. But the more you know, now we get surprised a lot of times because we don't have perfect knowledge. We, in other words, many times we, we pardon people from prison think they've been thinking they've been rehabilitated and find out we've made a mistake. But the mistake was that we didn't have perfect uh, information. Well, if we can understand how we can predict the weather five days in advance uh, based on information and more days if we've got more information, and we can understand how we can do a pretty good job of predicting one another's behavior and how certain things will happen. And uh, a lot of science deals with predicting, doesn't it? The, the, a good theory is one that can predict. Uh, and so a lot of science, well then, we, we, if we can do it in a finite sense, then it shouldn't be, I don't think, any great difficulty to understand how that God, who is infinite, and who knows everything, can do it in the perfect sense. Okay? Now, hold your place here, and one more passage before we get into the history thing. Uh, Psalms 139. first 18 verses. Mark, would you take the first, or Tim, take the first nine verses, and Mark, take the next nine. And listen very carefully now to the, the psalmist on some of those statements. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are in, in, intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to the heaven, thou art there. If I, t if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me. Through 18. Mm -hmm. okay. if, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works 
are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me unformed, my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake, I am still with you. You look at verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to pass. And then in uh, verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And then look at verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So David said, you knew my life in its entirety before I was born. And uh, when I go to talk, you already know what's coming out of my mouth before it does. Well, the, out of the abundance of a man's heart, his mouth speaketh, right? So obviously, if God knows the heart, then he knows what's coming out. And so that's, you know, we can, God's reading the heart, and so he knows what's coming out. But he has foreknowledges of such that he already knew uh, David and knew all the things. Uh, in Jeremiah 1, in verse 4, uh, the statement was made to Jeremiah. Jeremiah thought he was too young for the job that God had called him to do. And he said, Jeremiah, before you were even formed in the womb, I already knew you in all the days. Paul said in Galatians that... Uh, I believe it's 1 and 15 in Galatians, that uh, it was or, he was set apart for the gospel from the womb. In other words, that God knew all the time. Now, Paul didn't surprise anybody when he made the decision, when, when he was confronted with the resurrected Christ. He didn't surprise God. God already had chosen him as to be the apostle of the Gentiles. Um, the same with the Ethiopian eunuch. He didn't surprise anybody in heaven when he made the decision of Asterisk, Philip was sent to him. God knew that his heart would respond. In 1 Corinthians, the 18th chapter, Corinth is such an ungodly place. Paul went in there in fear and trembling, didn't want to go. He was reluctant and, and said that he was. And God told him to stay there. He says, Paul, I've got many people in this city. You don't know. But God knew that he had a number in Corinth that was going to respond to the gospel and so he told Paul to go ahead and stay there. So we have, on the one hand, man with free choice. And as a result of free choice, there is no guarantee that even though you're faithful to God and you love God, that uh, things will always go great for you. You can be killed. Uh, you can go hungry at times. Uh, you can have a lot of negative things happen to you. Even though the law is inherently right, you reap benefits to the extent that you follow it. But by the same token, God knows you. And he knows the future before it happens. And so what we're going to see is that God brings about his will all through history, and that includes now, without tampering with anybody's will. And the reason he can do this is because God has perfect foreknowledge. Uh, what could you do with the stock market if you knew exactly what it was going to do today before it happened? 
quick. Yeah, the stock, the stock market dropped 30 points today, dropped uh, 20 points yesterday. Uh, it's going to drop or go up tomorrow. We don't know. You could literally become rich on any given week if you could perfectly predict the stock market. So you can see that, that foreign knowledge is a tremendous thing. And, and to the ex knowledge is powerful, isn't it? Knowledge is power. And to the extent that you know, you can control and manipulate and get your will done. And to the extent that you know, knowledge is an extremely powerful tool. Uh, look at all the decisions when get into athletes and they, they draft these players and, and uh, wonder what Portland is thinking. They could have had Michael Jordan and they, they went for Sam Bowie. You know, well, Sam Bowie was seven foot two. Michael Jordan was six six. But uh, I'm saying they didn't have, we, we operate, but you can see that you could win the NBA every year if you had perfect knowledge, couldn't you? You win the World Series every year if you had perfect knowledge. You could become rich in the stock market. You wouldn't have to tamper with anybody's will. If you know, all right, now, you've got God then who perfectly knows the thinking of every human heart alive, knows every decision they're going to make, can anticipate it, and so therefore we have God uh, with the ability to operate and bring about his will without tampering with anybody simply because he is omniscient. He knows everything. All right, now, throughout history, by the way, one thing I don't want to leave the impression on because I just don't want to get deep into that tonight because that's another study within itself, that we said that bad things, there's no guarantee that bad things won't happen to you or anything like it. I don't want to leave the impression that life is just a matter of chance for the believer. Uh, that God has that worked out too without tampering with anybody's free will, that uh, uh, his tools in the realm of providence are the angels. They are the ministering spirits for those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1, 12, and 13. David makes it very clear that, that he wasn't afraid of much of anything because of his strong convictions about the angels. It, it, it may be every one of us may have had an opportunity or so in your life where an angel has done something that has made it possible for you to be here tonight. But the point is you cannot know that. The, uh, until your life is over and you get over in the other realm, you will never know at what precise time. Uh, but in the, Jesus, on the one hand, told the apostles that they didn't have to be afraid of anybody, that not a hair on their head. You know, that they, were, that they had God's providential care. Then on the other hand, he told them that they were going to suffer and die. Told Peter he was going to die. So how do you, uh, how do you uh, uh, make that a congruent statement? On the one hand, he says, don't worry about anything. You're going to finish your mission. And then on the other hand, he tells Peter you're going to die. So obviously, the, the only way my mind can reconcile that is that when Peter was accomplishing what God wanted him to do, God gave him his providential care without tampering with the will of, of anyone, and we see the angels operating in the life of Peter as you go, go through Acts and all. But then, when Peter had accomplished what God wanted him to, God stepped out of the way, and, and Peter was killed. Same thing with Jesus, right? Excellent. That's good, Mark. That uh, We find that 
they tried to take the life of Jesus a number of times before they actually did. And, and he had his, the, we keep finding this statement, it was not his time. That the God's providential care. And, and then when they got ready to take his life, he told Pilate, you know, no if, and, or but way, that if my kingdom were of this world, God could send 12 legions of angels and deliver me right now. In other words, that, that uh, you don't, he says, you don't have any power except what God allows you to have. So on the one thing, you've got free choice. God has decided not to interfere and to allow this to happen. So it's the will of God in the sense that God allowed it. He didn't cause it, but he allowed it. But he could have intervened and stopped it without tampering with anybody's free will. Uh, just the, uh, the way the angels work, and that's another study in, in society itself. Okay, now, let's go back and look then. Turn back to Genesis, the 12th chapter. You want to see that, uh, how that in answer to this question, we could start earlier. This is just a good place to start because it's, a, it's, it's the one place we can start, one of the first places where we can sink our teeth in it historically uh, with facts that we, even outside the Bible, that we can grab hold of. Uh, the statement was that God causes all things to work together for good those who love him. We've already seen in the context that uh, that they were suffering many physical things. And so then the question is, how was God bringing about all the things necessary to prepare the world for Christ? Okay, look at, uh, let's see, Carol, would you read that uh, verses 1 through 3, please? Uh, Genesis 12. Okay. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. There are three distinct promises that he makes to Abraham. Anybody want to identify them? I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless okay. you, and I'll bless your family. So what's that? I'll make your name great. Yeah, your name. Okay. Or I'll curse you, those who curse you. <laughs> All the people on earth are blessed. Yeah. Depends on which one okay. number. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's more than three. There's more than three. <laughs> well, three, what I'm talking about, all of them can be, all of them are really in the three. He says uh, that he would make a nation, right? Verse 2. And uh, uh, look at verse 1 right before it. Go into the land that I will show you. Leave your country, your people, and go to the land that I will show you. And he's going to develop this as he, as he goes through about the uh, land itself. Uh, look at verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Okay, so that going to make a nation, going to give you a land, and then uh, all the latter part of verse 3, all peoples of the earth would be blessed through you. Okay, the rest of the Bible is really the story of the fulfillment of this promise. That uh, Abraham's descendants were going to be made into a great nation. His descendants were going to be given a land. And then all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed as a result of his descendants. Well, at the time here, I don't believe Abraham or anybody else fully understood all that was involved. They just knew a blessing was coming from God. 
but they didn't fully understand it. They did understand about the land, and they understood the nation. And at the time of that Jesus came to this earth, the Jews had worked out an interpretation uh, that the way the blessing would come is when, uh, through other prophecies that will progress through the Old Testament, spoke of a Messiah and of the lineage of David, they had worked out an interpretation where that uh, a descendant of David would become king of Israel. And Israel would overthrow the countries that had conquered them, and Israel would reign supreme among all of those nations, and all of these other nations of the world would be blessed because of the reign of the Jewish Messiah in Jerusalem. That was their interpretation. They were wrong on it. And that, by the way, is why that they had so much problem with Jesus. He showed no interest in an earthly reign. He showed no interest in fighting the Romans or overthrowing them. And that was their understanding. That's why that uh, before they take him, uh, Peter got his sword. He's ready to fight. Uh, that, uh, he's, that his understanding is, is the, the Jewish interpretation of that. So they have the promise there. Now, this promise is, uh, let's see, the next, look at 15, 13 through, no, 26, 1 through 5 first. Uh, chapter 26, 1 through 5. And uh, notice how this promise is renewed to uh, Isaac. Uh, what's your first name again? Brian. Brian, okay. Brian, would you read that, please? Uh, that uh, first five verses. Okay. Genesis 26. Yes, sir. Descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Oh, okay, that, okay, go ahead, through verse five. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. Okay. Now, what you see there is the reason that God picked Abraham. <clears throat> Obviously, if God's going to work through a human being, he can't work through somebody that's not going to obey him, right? And you're not going to obey him unless you've got faith in him. And so the specific reason that Abraham was chosen was because of his very strong faith in God that would lead him to obey God. And God is going to ask him to do some things that are going to be very difficult to do. But notice the, the promise is made again to Isaac here that the land, the descendants, nation, and uh, then he says, through your offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed in verse 4. All right, later on in the 35th chapter, the promise will be given to Jacob. Okay, in the 35th chapter, given to Jacob. I believe two of the verses that hit on it is verses 11 and 12 there. All right, this promise will continue on uh, down, down through the centuries and will become more specific as time passes. Now, what he does, uh, he's called Abraham, who has faith in him, doesn't understand a lot, but he has enough faith to obey God. So the first thing he tells Abraham to do is to leave his home and to get out and go into the land, and he will go out into the land as a wanderer. Now, when he goes out, later on we'll learn, again, we can't hit all of this for lack of time. One of the reasons that Abraham was told to leave home is Abraham came from an idolatrous background. In fact, Abraham's daddy, Terah, was in idolatry. And so what he really is doing is he's saying, Abraham, you're going to have a child, and I don't want that child brought up 
in this idolatrous community with your idolatrous daddy or his granddaddy. And so, get out there, and I'm going to take you out into a land. So God wasn't playing games with Abraham when he took him out into that land, and he wasn't just saying, I'm going to see how much faith Abraham has. God already knew how much faith Abraham had. I mean, he may have proved his faith to other people, but God already knew. And he goes out. What God is concerned with is that Abraham is separated from that idolatrous people and that Isaac is brought up in this situation with that idolatry. So we begin to see how God is going to work things for the good of humanity. He picks out a faithful man, just like he picked out Noah earlier, and he picked out Abel, and he picked Seth, and he picked Enoch, and he had other faithful people. He picks out a faithful man, and he communicates with this faithful man. And so he sends him out in order for him to develop his faith outside of that idolatrous background and then to bring up his children. By the way, a little sideline that uh, uh, we can learn something there too. When you talk about bringing up your own children in a pagan, in a society that's becoming more and more pagan, we might see something of the importance of providing an environment uh, for young people who are developing in their faith to God uh, that where they don't have all the all the things that's going to interfere with that in that in those young years, and so he gets him out. Okay, now after he gets him out, note, come over to fifth, chapter 15, and beginning with verse 13, where God's going to talk to Abraham again. Of what chapter? Uh, chapter 15 of Genesis, and. Uh, Okay, this wasn't where, this 12. was where he talked with Jacob over in 35, wasn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah I just mentioned 15. that. I didn't. We're back to the 15th chapter, and God's talking to Abraham. Okay, uh, Christy, would you read that 12 uh, through 16? Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, now look at the statements there. Uh, Abraham's into a deep sleep. God speaks to him. He says, know for certain, your descendants will be strangers in a country that's not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in good old age. And then he says, in the latter part of verse 16, uh, your descendants will come back here. In other words, he's telling Abraham, this is the land I'm giving you, the land of Canaan. But notice, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Notice again, God is going to accomplish something without tampering with will, with anybody's will. He's chose this land to give to the descendants of Abraham, which is going to wind up being the Israelite people. And so he's going to give that land to them. But notice what he's going to do. 
the people living in the land are becoming more and more ungodly. But their iniquity is not yet full. In other words, there is still hope there. There, there are still apparently believers in there. Remember, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, uh, a priest of God in, in, in Jerusalem, or at that time, the area where Jerusalem was, Salem. And so there was still some faith there. But God knew, the who has perfect foreknowledge, he knew the direction they were going. And he knew that they were approaching the time when there would be no faith in the land of Canaan, that idolatry was going to eat the whole thing up. So, God has determined, I'm going to pass judgment on this country. And I'm going to use the descendants of Abraham, after I built them into a nation, I'm going to use them to pass judgment. And then after I pass judgment on the Amorites in that, in that area, he's using the Amorites really as a synecdoche to stand for the whole group of people because they are the largest group. But after I pass judgment, then I'm going to build up a nation of people that's going to prepare the world for the Messiah to come. But notice he's doing this all through his foreknowledge and working through faithful people and not tampering with the will of any. Now, in the process, there, there's this period of time that has to transpire before their sin is full and they're ready for judgment. But he says, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Okay. God already knows that uh, when Jacob comes on the scene, that Jacob is going to have these sons. And God knows, uh, and, and as it begins to unfold, what caused the brothers, by the way, to sell Joseph into slavery? Jealousy. Yeah. Jealousy, right. And Joseph, I mean, Jacob was definitely partial to Joseph, wasn't he? Well, is that a we can understand in a way that what happened there, that if, uh, if you've got a father that is obviously partial to one child over the others, well, then you're not going to have good feeling there. So I'm saying that Jacob, by simply being partial, well, why was he partial to Joseph? Son of Rachel. Son of Rachel. Rachel's the only one that he loved, ever was. And so the son of Rachel, and so he was partial to him. Jealousy, well... Nobody has surprised God. And so out of their jealousy, they will send him into bondage. They will sell him into bondage. All right, when he goes into bondage, how is God going to get this body of people into Egypt without tampering with anybody's will? Well, when Joseph goes into bondage, God knows what's going to happen. He knows that there's going to be some, there are going to be some real prosperous years with a lot of rain, and there's going to be a famine. And so, by telling, by the way, if God had not told Pharaoh in advance through Joseph to prepare for that famine, would Egypt have been in any better shape than anybody else? They wouldn't. So what we have is simply a natural famine that's coming on the land. And, and we've just like, a, a, remember a few years back, we went through a period of three years here where we had about 35 inches less than normal rain over a three-year period. And remember, they had people from the Midwest and other areas that sent in all kinds of food in here because and the water was down and TVA was worried. Now we've had several years of above uh, normal. Well, can you imagine how things could have been different all the way through if people had foreknowledge on that type of thing? 
So, in order to get them down there, God doesn't need to tamper. He just, he has foreknowledge. And so he tells what's going to happen. Egypt stores away. Here is Jacob and the brothers down here. Well, Jacob, God knows Jacob is not dumb. He didn't, uh, God knew how smart he was. What's old Jacob going to do when he's starving down here, he and his boys and their families, and they hear about all this prosperity in Egypt and the fact they got plenty to eat? Up there to get sure, just like you and I would. We'd, we'd do exactly the same thing. Well, hold your place there. Flip over to Psalms 105. He tampers in the sense though, that he reveals that knowledge to Joseph, though, right? Well, that's not... What I'm talking about tampering is, uh, is uh, interfering with somebody's free will. In other words, God always... Uh, we tamper with our children in the sense that we counsel them and warn them and try to persuade them. And if we know something in advance that's going to help them out, we tell them about it, right? Our own children. That we, If we know some negative thing that's going to happen, then we will convey it to our children. Well, in the same way, if God knows in advance some negative thing that's going to happen, he conveys it through the prophets and his people are ready for it. A good example in the New Testament was the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus knew in advance what was going to happen of its own natural course. God didn't cause it. So he conveys the information to the disciples based on that knowledge. They escape uh, what happened in, the, in that area. Okay, look at uh, Psalms 105. Uh, let me make sure I've got the right one. Uh, yeah, um, Barbara, read on through about verse uh, uh, 22. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name that the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. Remember the wonders He has done, His miracles, and the judgments He pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, His servant, O sons of Jacob, His chosen ones, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word He commanded for a thousand generations the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them, for their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. He called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. 
The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased, and teach his elders wisdom. Okay, now look at uh, some of the things in speaking of God. He says uh, uh, in verse 17, speaking of God, he sent a man before them, Joseph sold as a slave. Well, how did God send Joseph? It's really uh, the brothers did it. God allowed it to happen. He could have interfered. <clears throat> All right, now here's an interesting thing about uh, God is revealed by the prophets. God, in a sense, will take credit for everything. Uh, in Amos, the statement is made, Amos 6 and verse 3, I believe, shall evil befall a city and God not have caused it. It's, it's the fact that, that God can interfere, and so if he chooses not to, he will take credit in that sense. And so in Joseph's case, God chose not to interfere. He chose to allow them to go, and, and the reason he allowed it is because he wanted Joseph in Egypt, didn't he? And he wanted Joseph down there, and he allowed it. All right? God wanted a famine on the land. And again, there's no explanation as to what was involved in the, uh, to cause the famine at that point. The point is the timing was right, and God wanted a famine in the land itself. Then, how does he get Joseph to be in the position where he wants him? It says in verse 19, till, he, till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. Well, Joseph became identified initially by interpreting dreams. And so, again, without tampering with anybody's free choice, he winds up recognized by Pharaoh because of the very knowledge. Well, all through the Old Testament, the prophets will become recognized by very key people simply based on the knowledge they have. And the fact that what they say actually comes about, and then that causes people to respect them. So in the same way, Joseph, God places him in this high position. He doesn't tamper with Pharaoh's will at all. He just simply is, is using Joseph. Pharaoh's no dummy, and he can, he can read that information. Jacob is no dummy, and so he's going to respond to that famine, and when he hears about plenty, and, and so he will wind up in Egypt. And so we have a situation where God now has the descendants of Abraham in Egypt, and during this 400-year period, they're going to multiply and develop into a great nation of people. Well, they will wind up going into slavery. But they didn't go into slavery because God did anything mystical. Anybody remember what happened that caused the Israelites to go into slavery? When Pharaoh rose up, but didn't remember Joseph. Okay. The, uh, from the archaeologist, we learned that uh, there had been a people by the name of the Haskos that had gone in and of a Semitic background and had actually conquered Egypt before Joseph went in. And, and this Pharaoh reigned. After that, uh, the, they were defeated by what would be the, the true Egyptians. And so when they were defeated, uh, here are the Israelites who have a high place because of the favoritism that was bestowed on Joseph, but now we have a new king that knows not Joseph. Therefore, he feels no favoritism. Well, what is going to happen to any leader anywhere in the world when he's over a, 
a nation of people, and from within your nation, you have a people of a different language, a different culture, a different religious belief, and they are growing by leaps and bounds within your country. You're scared they'd overtake them. Yeah, you're scared. So impressed. Sure. What would uh, what would happen right here in Grundy County or in the county where you're at if uh, a group of people moved in, different language, different culture, different religious beliefs, and they really began to multiply and purchase more and more land and more of them come in, everybody would become very concerned, wouldn't they? Uh, of course, this is, and, and well, you can imagine what if you were operating with a king as they, as they had at that point. So, what will happen then is, is a very natural thing. God knew that when they multiply, here they are with their religious beliefs, their language, their culture, their different way of doing things, and God knew that they would be subjected, and he perfectly called the shots. So they, they wound up in bondage for that period of time. But God is also doing something else. After these years of bondage, God is literally preparing them to want a deliverer. They're going to be right for a deliverer after all these years of bondage. And then God will use that as a turning point or a focal point in the Jewish mind all throughout history. When he delivers them from Egypt, it's going to make such a splash that, oh, well, a good example and a, a much smaller thing, the, the blacks have pretty well achieved equality, not quite, but pretty well achieved equality in, in our society. Among their own, who do they continue to look back to as a focal point? Martin Luther King Jr. And all through their history, they will, and as a nation, we look back to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, that, that is a focal point. And so in the same vein with them, God wants to give them a focal point where he delivers them and all through their history, they will look back that our God delivered us from slavery. We were in bondage. Okay, so they develop into a, a nation there. They're put in slavery. The way is then prepared for Moses. Okay, Moses winds up educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. By the way, he probably was one of the few Israelites that had any education. And... Uh, at the same time, notice what is happening to Moses from the providence of God. He not only is getting the very best of Egypt's educational system, Moses can read and write and, and handle all the things that the educational system that day had to offer, but what else was he getting as part of his education? His background from his mother. Okay. His, his mom's right in there nursing him and bringing him up and teaching him the promise that was made to Abraham. These people carried that promise with them. And so what do you think Moses thought when he, the material that we've just read over there, that now his mother and the tablets that they had, that Moses, by the way, the tablets that they had, Moses will use to write this material. And so here Moses is being introduced to the fact that, hey, these things have come about just like God said. That, uh, Joseph did get sent down. Uh, we've developed into a great nation. We've been in bondage all these years. And then what happened to Moses is, he was sort of like Abraham. He figured things out to a point, but he still didn't have it all figured out. Remember Abraham, he tried to help God in 
and since they didn't have a child, he says, uh, you know, we got to do something about this. You know, God, and so they, they figured it out and they jumped the gun on God. <laughs> but it showed also that they had free choice, didn't it? That God does important. He said, no, Abraham, you made a mistake. You know, that's not, not it. But it showed he's operating with free choice, and it also shows that Abraham's thinking, right? Okay, in the same way, what does Moses do? He gets to be 40 years of age. He's got all this information he's been taught about the true God. He knows about the flood. He knows about Abraham. He knows about the promise that's been made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows and can see the fulfillment of all these events. He knows that 400 years have passed. And we're in slavery. And then Moses takes a look at himself. And here he is in Pharaoh's household with all that education and all that power. And so what decision does Moses, what conclusion does Moses come to? He's, He's the deliverer. He's the deliverer. God hasn't said one word to Moses yet. Moses, through the past teaching of his mother and all of those tablets and the historical information has looked at it, he's a strong believer in God. He comes to the conclusion, hey, I must be the one. And so he makes his decision to take a stand prematurely. And he goes out and takes his stand and, and slays an Egyptian taskmaster. And what happens to the Israelites? They, they don't follow him. Right, they'll follow him. And, and now he's in a state of confusion, isn't he? And Pharaoh wants to kill him. So it isn't working out. He is walking by faith, and everything falls, everything hits him right in the face, and so he runs off to the land of Midian and just gives up, looks like he just comes to, sort of like Elijah, he's ready to give up on it. He marries, has children, and at 80 years of age, when he's already decided it's not going to happen, <laughs> not going to happen, he's wore out. He's no longer a good speaker. He's slow of speech. He don't move like he did at one time. And, and God, he was, he was ready to go at 40, and God wasn't. And so then God calls Moses. Okay. And, and then remember all the argument that Moses gave God. So he goes back, but again, what we see is God working for the good of mankind. All that's happening with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses is in the final analysis preparing mankind for the Messiah that will come. He's shooting in that direction. And God is doing everything without tampering with anybody's free choice, any of their free will, through his perfect foreknowledge God predetermines for whom he foreknew. And so God looks, and here's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others, and he uses these people that have faith in him and love him. He is working things out to their good. They had hardships in their life, didn't they? But his working things out was that he was, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he was in the process of preparing the time when Jesus would come to the earth. And so we come all the way through the Old Testament, and we're going to pause here, but we can get up to the point of Daniel, and we studied it not too long back. And remember, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, Daniel interpreting it, and talking about the next four empires. Well, then, when these next four empires came about, it was the will of God that Babylon defeat Israel, now what good, when Babylon defeated Israel because of Israel's sin, what good came to this business of 
preparing the world for the Messiah, working things out for the good of mankind. You couldn't have proved it by a Jew then. It looked all bad to him. What was ha what happened? It dispersed the Jews. Over. Okay. The, uh, here they are in Israel. The Babylonians conquer them, and they are dispersed throughout the Babylonian captivity. And every place that Jew goes, he builds something called a synagogue. His temple's destroyed, so he builds a synagogue where he can worship and study the scriptures. And every place he goes, he takes the knowledge of a Messiah to come, that there is a Messiah coming, and he takes it all over the world. Okay? The Babylonians come along and defeat the, uh, are the Medo-Persians and defeat the Babylonians. And the Babylonians pass the, not the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians. Cyrus was a religious person who had strong convictions himself. He passes the edict to let the Israelites go, and they go back and rebuild their temple and their city. They're given support to do it. The Jewish writers said one of the reasons that Cyrus was predisposed in favor of the Jews is that when he came in and took the city, the Jewish religious leaders, priests, showed him that through Isaiah the prophet, God had already called him by name and said, Cyrus, even though you don't know me, I know you, and I have chosen you as a servant, and you are going to set my people free. And he went ahead and told how he would pass. And it says, their, their writing said that Cyrus was overwhelmed by that information and him being identified and all these things come about. He passed the edict. It's a historical record that those people go back home. They rebuild their temple. Then after the Medo-Persians, the Greeks come along, okay, from the standpoint of preparing the world for the Messiah. How did the Greeks help out in this? The language. Okay. We've got all these little different dialects all over the world. And the Greek were obsessed with taking their culture and language. And so now for the first time, since back at the Tower of Babel, if you want to call that something comparable, for the first time, all over the civilized known world, we have a language. <clears throat> By the way, uh, something similar is happening today. English today is about like Greek was then. And, and we're, we're sending people into Russia and all those countries behind the so-called Iron Curtain uh, because those people want to learn English because it's the language to know. And in every country in the civilized world, a language, if, if you go through high school in any of those countries, you're going to learn English. And, and in most of them, it's going to be the absolute number two language because it, we, have been, we are the number one power in the world. Well, that's been outstanding for Christianity. Uh, literally outstanding. Okay, Greek was spread, and the Greek culture, and by the way, the, the, you have this one language, and the New Testament will wind up being put in its final analysis in the Greek language. All right, now Rome conquers Greek, uh, Greece, and conquers Israel. What does Rome serve so far as the church is concerned? Roads. Pardon? Roads. Builds roads. All these great roads. Now you now we're getting ready for Paul. You know, Paul's <laughs> not the strongest Paul's not the strongest guy around. But he's got a Greek citizen and he can walk on a road if it's there. Paul's not the type to blaze through a jungle, is he? He was a pretty sickly little man, according to uh, in fact the word Paul itself is a nickname that means little fellow. And, he, and by his own admission, he was not a healthy person. So we've got all these roads built for Paul and the Christians. But then what else do the Romans do? 
after they conquered the, the place, they uh, unified the whole world essentially where it was all under their power and uh, all warfare stopped. And, I don't know if that's really what you're here for. That's part, uh, under beginning with Augustus, uh, in, from about 14 uh, uh, AD, before 14 BC, I should say, we have the, uh, no, I should say about 27 BC. From 27 BC up until about 66 AD, the longest period of peace, historians say, that the civilized world has ever known. And so we have a period of peace. We've got one power controlling all this. We've got all these roads. If you're a Roman citizen, you can go anywhere you want. But then something else happens here. What Now, Israel, look at what would have happened if the, if the devout Jews could have had their way. Rome would have been overthrown, wouldn't it? I mean, to the devout Jew, saying that God wanted Rome in charge would be like trying to convince an American now that God would like for Saddam to whip us and him be in charge of the world. Uh, and that's that's the way. But what would have happened to Christianity if uh, if Israel was its own country, in charge of its own, and actually was strong like it was in the day? What if Israel was like it was in the days of David, with a strong army and a strong king, and 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 they were in control of all of that? What would have happened to Christianity? Well, it's been very localized. Yeah. That one. Okay. All right. At best, local, but. Could it have lived in Jerusalem? They had to use, they, they killed Jesus, they killed the apostles. Uh, it, trying to convert was like going into Saudi Arabia and today and trying to do it. And so what happens? Rome turns out to be the great protectorate of the people of God. And so what we can see going all the way back through history, God causing all things to work together for good those that love him. The end result is to bring Jesus to the world, not to make it so that everybody uh, eats everything they want every day, has everything they want, drives the exact car, or never gets sick. Uh, as long as we live in a sinful world where people have free choice and we live in a body that's dying because of sin, People are going to experience bad things, and any Christian convert has been misled if he thinks it's that you know that some bad things can't happen to him. They they can. The great good, and what we all need is that that we're going to die, and the great good is is what we, is the salvation that we have in Christ. Now, some things we might can learn among others is that notice back there as God was working in the in human history, bringing about His will how many times that uh, the, the thing that God was doing was different than what the faithful would have wanted. I mean, all the way through, uh, how much did, did Joseph understand about his situation? Uh, when Abraham was wandering around out there, wondering, when is God going to give me this land? You know, he was ready right then. Or did Abraham want Isaac? He didn't. He made a, Abraham made a strong argument for Ishmael. Right. The the Arabs say that Abraham was right. They still hang on to Ishmael. But uh, Abraham made a very strong argument for Ishmael. Um, the Arabs say that, you know, Hagar wound up in Mecca. And then, of course, the Arabs trace their lineage to Ishmael. But Abraham didn't get what he wanted. Uh, Isaac didn't. 
Jacob didn't. Joseph had all these negative things happen to him. Moses was ready to go at 40. Now, he thought he was too old at 80. And then when we come all the way through history, Israel thought he was foolish. Uh, even the prophets had problems with ungodly nations conquering Israel. Remember Isaiah? Uh, God is really rebuking Isaiah. And he said, Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways, my thoughts and your thoughts. Uh, the prophets found it very difficult to understand how that God's cause could be affected for the good by using pagan nations to conquer Israel. They knew Israel was bad, but it was like, say, us and Saddam. We look at our nation and we say, oh, we're bad. You know, we indulge in more pornography than any country on the face of the earth, and, and we do every, all kinds of ungodly things. But we're not as bad as Saddam. You know, well, that was the Israelites, you know, that, that sure, we're bad, but look at the Babylonians, Lord, if you want to see what bad is. So all these things happen. Well, then, it lets us know in the present time we have to be very careful, or we might wind up railing against the very things that God wants done. I don't believe that Christians should get disturbed about who is ruling. I'm not saying we ought to be concerned and use our judgment and things like that, but if, you understand, if we understand that God's aim for the world is, is spiritual salvation, and I don't believe that God cares that America is a great country on the face of the earth. Or that I don't believe God is a patriotic American. That uh, that I think He's just as concerned about that little child in Africa or Ethiopia or Russia or any place else. And so, if America can be a tool used to promote the will of God, fine. If the time comes when when our iniquity is full and we can serve God more by something else happening, then that might very well. And I think Christians have to be the one all the way through to interpret and make it clear that God hasn't abandoned anything, that God's concern has always been eternal life and, and spiritual goodness. Romans 9 through 11 yes. yeah, goes that into that. Pardon? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask yeah. you about. Yeah, well, that would be the next so part, yeah. Romans 9, because you get into the, the key again with Romans 9 through 11 as you go through it uh, is to point out again that everything is happening of free choice and free right, will. And, and it's the people's sin. God didn't right. reject his people. He makes that, that clear. Right. Um, and just like uh, the people that think today uh, that God in some mystical way has caused a halo to come over the minds of the Jews and, <laughs> and, and there will be this point in history where the Messiah will come back and we'll have a premillennial I didn't realize that was... I had somebody tell me that one oh, time. Oh, you did? <laughs> I was just going to look. Oh. said that they were... Oh, what were the words? That they... God had blinded them. Didn't right. But then I couldn't understand that. Well, why would God want them not to understand? They're actually taught that, and, and it's taught that when the Messiah yeah. comes, then they'll be enlightened and all. But the only reason they were blinded is because of their own bias and dishonesty. That, uh, that uh, Paul's whole argument is that he says, Paul says, I'm a Jew, and look at me, I've embraced the Messiah, so that obviously there's nothing keeping a Jew from doing it. Uh, when we get back on that again, we'll pick up and go through that ninth and all, and hit on you know some more on that in a good study. Uh, I don't know, 
Mark has been doing when we studied angels and all. I can't remember, Mark, whether you were when we studied just, that or not. Just the part on Daniel that you touched on. Okay, but we have but when we studied angels right. and the prophets. I have God. not been through that either. Okay, well, that's a good, we'll, what we can do is when we finish up on uh, Revelation, and I think we can finish that in a couple more sessions, and then go ahead and further study on that. We'll go ahead and go through and finish the Revelation stuff first. Yeah, because yeah, we're already in, in that. Uh, I think it's amazing when you look at this and you see God working things out hundreds of years. I mean, he, things that happen hundreds and hundreds of years before you see the benefits coming from it. Right. But God works all that out, and a lot of times what you're talking about, the prophets having problems with the like the synagogues being set up all over. I mean, that was worked out, what, six, five or six hundred years right. before Christ, or set in motion, and, and then it's just, I mean, it's there, and it's, it's ready. Yeah, the, uh, uh, all the way through, the amazing thing to my mind is the fact that um, that doing it and not tampering with free choice at all, but through perfect foreknowledge uh, and bringing about, of course, working in the spiritual realm too in a lot of ways, but, but not tampering with free choice in any way. Let me ask you a question that, that comes up a lot, and that's people say, have an objection about the existence of God. They say, well, a good God wouldn't allow all these bad things to happen to all these people that are, that are innocent. Uh, they haven't really done anything wrong. Babies have things bad happen. You know, what's a, a good way to answer Okay, that first of all, ask them, what is their definition of a good God? Uh, for example, the Bible says a good parent is one who disciplines their children. And said the man that loves his child chastises him the time. And the person who hates his child is one who doesn't discipline from God's standpoint. So uh, you might look at, uh, one person may look at this parent that gives their children everything and say, hey, they really love their children. You know, they're great people. But uh, somebody else might say, no, that they really don't love those children. You know, that they're, they're not doing what's best for the child. That if you love the child, you do what is best for the child, even though it may be painful, okay? That uh, if our child has cancer, even though it's painful, we want a doctor to cut on him, cut that cancer out. So the first thing I start with is, what do you mean by good? And that, that uh, you are maybe forcing your definition of good on God. And, and, and that's, that's the real problem there. All right. God's concern is like the passage there. God causes all things to work together for good that loves the love. We are eternal beings, spiritually. God's concern is that things happen in such a way that calls us to live forever with Him and be united with Him and, and to give us every opportunity to mature and grow and things like that. So anything that brings that about is good from God's standpoint. All right, now, if, if there, God's law is right and he wants all people to see that, if there are no consequences from doing wrong, can people learn to see that God's way is inherently right? But then when they do wrong, how do you get out of innocent people suffering? 
because they've got without, in other words, the only way you can stop innocent people from suffering is to tamper with free choice in some sense. Now, what would happen uh, uh, at the church where you go if it became obvious to everybody in the community that nobody in your church ever got cancer, they ever had a heart attack, that their businesses were always successful, their kids never fell down the steps, their kids never broke any bones, uh, their kids, when they got their teeth checked, they were always in perfect condition, they didn't have to buy braces or anything like that. Now, uh, do you think your church building can get everybody in at once? <laughs> would, would those people be coming in because that they had decided that they needed to repent and put their trust in God and they really loved him? Or would they, they come in because of this package we're offering here? <laughs> and so, if that, in other words, God wants people who have seen how bad sin is and who have made the decision to repent and put their trust in him. And he just simply cannot have that without having a situation where there are natural consequences and all. And just like sometimes we'll say maybe about our own children as they grow up, well, you know, I hate for them to have to suffer the consequence here, but that's the best thing that's going to happen. You know, that's, that's the, uh, the best thing. If a, if a child doesn't study, the best thing maybe is not that they luck out and make an A. The best thing may be they fall flat on their face because then that's going to change them. Uh, you know, from, from uh, that point on. Uh, if my child's arrested two or three times for rowdiness in the community, the best thing is not that I go out there and bail him out. I don't think. I think the best thing is that he suffer the consequences uh, from it. You know. So I think that uh, as long as people have free choice, and from God's standpoint, good is this person developing and loving what is right, repenting of what is wrong, and putting their trust in Him. And you can't have all that without us taking the medicine of consequences. But from the opposite standpoint, I mean, Christians, you know, you hit on, on the good part, but, you know, there's verses... There's verses in the Bible that people interpret in anyway, but, you know, if you have a faith in the great and wild seed, you know, you can save it, you can you know, save it. Bush, be you uprooted, mouth moving, and all this other stuff, and asking you, you shall receive, and and all this other stuff. Okay, you know, first of all, Mark, on this thing, plain, uh, as great and mouth receive, all right, did Jesus ever uproot the mountain or anything like that or impossible. The, let me give you a couple of similar statements. If your right eye pin, you pluck it out, if your hand, cut it off. The, right, the most uh, common way of speech in that day was the hyperbole. We use it, uh, uh, but they used it more. I mean, it was really among the, in, in, according to Lamsa in that part of the world today, that uh, a, a good example was